The scripture this morning is from Romans 8, verses 12 through 30. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of children of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. But the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, your word is a seed in our hearts of the soil. Till the ground, plant the seed. Let it germinate and grow and bear fruit for all creation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's true, Romans, the book of Romans is a dense book. Um, tightly woven arguments. But you know, when you're writing something to revolutionize the entire world, um, and you can only do it in 16 chapters, uh, I think Paul does a pretty good job. But there's a lot, there's a lot to sort of, uh, and I don't want to say untangle, it's not like it's tangled, um, but it's dense. It is dense. And a lot of what I've read there, I'm not going to be able to to pick apart every single part of it. Um, but I'm going to try to give a sense of where Paul is 
in his larger argument. But again, keep this in mind. What Paul's doing is nothing short of changing the entire world. And it is true. After Romans, the seed of Romans is planted, and really it's the seed of the gospel, the world will never be the same. It will be completely transformed because of the gospel and because of a book that took 16 chapters to roll out what the gospel looks like in the world as it is. The world at the time was pretty complex. And one of the things that Paul has to do in the beginning of the book is he has to essentially demolish the world as it was. He has to take the whole thing down. And this is, this is pretty intense because the world as it was was fairly complex. Um, could we summarize it? Well, sure, we could, we could try to summarize it. What we could try to say is something that we do now. Maybe we could recognize ourselves in the world of the Romans. The, the world that Paul's writing to is made up of two main groups. You've got the Roman folks, the Greco-Roman folks, and then you have the Jews. And there's a lot of differences, of course, between these two people. But one thing they have in common is something that we all have in common, is a desire to create some kind of a code, some kind of a reliable code that we can live by that tells us where we are and what to do in the world. Uh, the Jews called it Torah, or law, and the Romans thought of it as like an honor code, honor and shame. And the beauty of a code like this is you, you, just, you just can tell who's in and who's out. You always know the right thing to do. You always know when you cross the line. It's nice, right? And we have stuff like this. You know, for instance, part of our code is to wear clothing. And if somebody's walking around without clothing, they're out. They are out. That is not okay. That is not acceptable. And so Paul's not really against, like, what's in the code. You know, he even says at one point, he says, the law is wonderful, it's good, it's great. It's just what we do with these codes that messes us up. Because we turn these things into... Um, we turn it into everything. We turn it into how to exclude people. We turn it into what makes us confident. We turn it into um, how, we, how we live and move in society. Uh, we turn it into everything, really. And, and ultimately, we turn it into a God. And so Paul needs to dismantle these, these codes, these ways of operating, these rules, unspoken rules for communities. He just needs to tear them apart. And he does. In the first part of the book, he just destroys them. Uh, it leaves a question, though. If you don't have a code like that, how do you live? And what, how do you make your decisions? How do, you, uh, how do you know if you're part of a community? How do you know if you're, if you're being kind and generous? How do you know if you're crossing a line? How do you do this? Paul's answer is life in the Spirit. He's not going to give a new, better code. He's not going to say, oh, you messed up the Old Testament law, here's another law, you know, or, or something like that. Because guess what? We'll just mess it up again. We'll turn it into this tool to uh, hurt people and exclude people and break society apart. 
He says, no, we're going to try something else. We're going to try life in the spirit. Now, this is not innovative. I mean, this is like, this goes all the way back to the garden, this stuff. Okay. So Paul's not making this up. And it's all based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he's going to unpack this thing. And the, the best word I have for this is that it's strange. It is strange. I'll show you why I think it's strange. But um, let's see. Let's see how it starts. Um, he says that uh, life in the spirit is more like being a kid than it is an adult. Adults, you know, what's our goal? What's our what's our intention? Our intention is self sufficiency. You know, we we kind of want to have our stuff together. We want to be able to uh, take care of ourselves and people around us. Competency, things like that. Paul says life in the spirit, it's something else. It's, it's reliance on God as your father. It's intimacy. He uses, uh, he says it's, it's crying out, Abba, Father. It's interesting he uses those because uh, it's two different languages. Abba is Aramaic, Father in, in here, it's Greek. Um, and he uses both of those to say it doesn't matter what language you use, it's, but it's about intimacy. So you can be from all these different groups and have the same Father. That's okay. But it's like being a child. That's, that's the beginning of life in the Spirit. And a big reason why it's like being a child is because Jesus was a child of God. Jesus was the son to the Father. And if we want to be like Jesus, we'll need to have that kind of relationship always with the Father. So instead of it being independence, it's dependence. Instead of it being sort of like, um, you know, beyond emotion, very rational, very thinking, it's deeply, deeply intimate. You don't grow out of intimacy. When you become an adult, you don't think that you don't need intimacy anymore. You absolutely do. And sometimes adults get into trouble when we act like we don't. There's always a need for intimacy. Life in the spirit is intimacy with God. So that's how it begins, life in the spirit. That's not that strange, though, I don't think. This is where it starts to get strange. Life in the spirit is about a strange glory. He wants to talk about glory now. And, and the way he talks about glory is he makes an analogy with the creation, which all this is sort of unexpected. Like, um, but we're going we're gonna to work through it we're gonna, because it's, it's important to understand. So he gives this analogy for the creation. And he says, look, creation, creation, um, it groans. It groans because it's under a bondage to death. Death is woven through creation. When we, you know, back then, like, they didn't have, you know, uh, industrialism. You know, they didn't have factory farming. They didn't have huge, you know, islands of plastic in the middle of the ocean. You know, they, they didn't have all these things. And so, like, it's almost easier for us to understand this now than it was back then. Um, but he... He, he says that when you look at creation, you see kind of bondage to death. And it does kind of make sense when you think of our relationship to creation. Because our relationship to creation is, is built on death. Um, we don't live without killing. We have to kill in order to live. That's just the way the world is. And creation is the thing that we kill in order to survive. 
So there is this kind of bondage to death that, that creation lives under. And he, and he says that creation groans. And this groaning is connected to us, he says. That it's waiting for us to be revealed as the sons of God. It's waiting for our glory. And then he says, we're groaning too. Not just the creation, but we're groaning for our own redemption. We are... We're not very optimistic. I mean, we like to put, we like to act optimistic, but he says, at our core, the world gets us down. At our core, we are groaning because death weighs on us heavily. Whether it's our death, whether it's the death of loved ones, whether it's sickness, whatever it is, whether it's the death of relationships in our jobs and in our families, maybe extended families, um, maybe it's just watching the news, and every time we see this, we groan in ourselves. We groan about these troubles. And we long for something to change. And we long for redemption. And here's the strange part is he says that that groaning that you're doing, he says that's the first fruit of the Spirit in you. It's evidence of the Spirit. It's saying this is the Spirit at work in you. He says, if you were fine with the death in the world, if you were fine with everything that's awful about it and all that goes on and all that troubles, if you were just sort of like, ah, what's the big deal? Or God's going to burn it up anyway or whatever. Say, that's not the Spirit's work. That's something else. But if it troubles you, if you get upset about what happens in this world, if, if, if the death of relationships pains you, don't fret because it means the Spirit's at work in you. I think that would have been strange to them, and it seems a little strange to me. It gets stranger, so here, let's keep going. He says, not only is that the Spirit working in you, you're, you're, you, know, you can imagine this person, can't you? Like the Debbie Downer sort of person who, like, everybody's having a great time it's like a birthday party, and then somebody says, how many more of these are you going to have? <laughs> Get out of here. Like, nobody wants to be around somebody like that. That sounds awful. Um, but, but Paul says that's evidence of the Spirit. That's the Spirit working in you because the Spirit is saying it's not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be different in this world. That was not the way God made it. We should never be okay with some level of death in the world, some level of destruction, some group of people being, you know, walking around Old Town. You know, we, we shouldn't do this thing where we're, you know, we see someone experiencing homelessness and we're like, you know, there's got to be a few homeless people in the economy or else, you know, we can't have any growth or inflation or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. No, no, it should pain us. Jesus was always moved by compassion. The, the Greek word's really weird. It's like a splunk, splunk. What Do you remember what it is, Ed? What is it? Yeah, great. Thank you. It's a really weird word. And, um, uh, but, but Jesus was always moved by it. You know, he's always grieving it. He walks, he walks down the Mount of Olives, and he's able to get a full view of Jerusalem, and he looks, and he sees them all, and his heart breaks. And he weeps and he says, I wish I was a chicken. 
He does. He says, I wish I was a hen and I could bring you all under my wings and teach you peace because you just, you just, all you know is death. All you know is death. That's, Jesus wants that. And, and, and it's okay to be that way. You're not being negative. You're, you're not being pessimistic. You're being honest about this is not the way God wants the world to be. Now, one of the responses to this that we're going to have is we're going to have prayer. People are going to pray. People are going to say, God, make this world different. But I don't know about you, but I don't always know what that prayer looks like. People ask me for prayer all the time. And sometimes people ask me for healing. And I do. I pray for healing. And I have friends. I have a really good friend who's like a healer. She, like someone comes to her and they're like, my ankle's messed up. She prays and their ankle's healed. That doesn't happen to me. I pray for ankles and they're still messed up. And I don't always know how to pray for these things. You know, someone's sick and I pray for them being sick or, or, or when people are dying. I pray for people when they're dying. I pray for them when they're unconscious. I pray for them at the moment of their death and they still die. And I don't always know what to pray. And here's what Paul says. He says, in those strange moments when you don't even have the words and all you have is a groan inside of you, the Spirit prays with you. And he uses this amazing, this amazing image. He says, um, the Spirit prays with a groaning too deep for words. I mean, think about that. Uh, it's not that the Spirit has words that I don't. It's not that there's a more eloquent way to pray that I don't know. Or it's not that you all have to learn the way of praying. I love eloquent prayers. I, I admire people who can eloquently pray. Um, but not even the Spirit prays eloquently. When the Spirit prays, it's something too, it's a sighing. I think I said groaning, it's a sighing. A sighing too deep for words is how the Spirit prays to the Father. I, this is strange. This is not, you know, a comfortable moral code. This is not something that we can easily sort of check off at the end of the night and say, I've done this, this, and this. I'm a decent person. I've nailed it. This is not that. This is a life in the Spirit. And it's strange, but Paul says it's also a glory. It's not just strange. It's not just we don't know. He says it is also glorious. And this is where he gets to that uber-famous verse that many of us know. Even people who aren't Christians, they know this verse. Um, my translation, I think, says, uh, all things work together for good for those who love God. Um, so I, I did a little digging on this verse. And uh, it doesn't, it, there's another way to translate it that I think is better. Now this rarely, rarely ever happens. Our versions are very reliable. Don't, don't be like, ah, oh, great, I need to learn Greek. I mean, it's, oh, your, your version is great. But every once in a while, eh, we need to kind of look again. And uh, it's not that different. It's not that different, but I'm going to give it to you. It says, uh, God works all things with us for good. God works all things 
or works with us all things for good. So not that different, but a few important differences. One is the subject really is God. When it says all things work together for good, it's not just serendipity, it's God doing it. But the other thing is, is that this, this working together for good really means working together with us. He's talking about working with us here. Um, and that, that to me is a, is a crucial difference because what it means is that we're going all the way back to the garden here, folks. Like, what he wants to do is he wants that original relationship with, that he had with Adam where he was working with Adam to tend and care for all of creation. Uh, you know, he was going to tend and keep the garden and it was going to be great. Now, here's the thing. Adam did not need to be smart to do that. Adam did not need to be wise and mature to do that. Adam did not need to be self-sufficient to do that. Adam did not need to be eloquent to do that. Adam did not need to be many things, but what he did need to be is dependent on God. He needed to be in touch and intimate with the Father in order to do that work that they were supposed to do together in the garden. And in that way, he was going to show the image and the glory of God if he would do that. So all, all Paul is doing here is going right back to the garden and saying, We've got to get back to that. And if we do, then we can do some really cool stuff. But it'll be mainly God doing it. I mean, you know, God's the competent one in this relationship. He doesn't need us to, to complete his competence. We're talking about God here. Sometimes we forget that. This is God. God does not need to work with us. But he chooses to work with us because he delights in us. He so delights in us. He of all of his creatures, he could, he could have worked with the giraffes. He probably should have worked with the dolphins. The dolphins are super smart. They're, they have beautiful music. They're sleek. I mean, like dolphins would have been a, probably a better choice, but he chooses humans. And he says, I want to have a relationship, a unique relationship with human beings. And I want to reveal my glory to them. And I want them to reveal my glory to the whole world and creation. And, and, and to release creation from this bondage of death. That's what I want. That is life in the spirit. That is the strange glory that God has for us. And in order to live into that strange glory, we're going to have to walk in this life of the spirit, and the life of the spirit will not be about competence or eloquence or anything like that. It'll just be about intimacy with the Father. It'll be about... Um, not being desensitized to the death and uh, uh, the, the, the fall of creation. And, it, and it'll finally be about whatever prayers we can muster and just bring those to the Father. All of this is in Jesus. We see it all in Jesus. Jesus was the one who was intimate with the Father. Jesus is the one who groaned and felt the pain of death and division and separation. <laughs> Jesus is the one who prayed, and even he even prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is the strange glory that we're supposed to emulate. Jesus is the life and the spirit that we're all called to. And by following in the footsteps of Christ, we will live a life in the spirit. So that's where Paul is in Romans. 
and he is going to take this amazing new way of being in the world and he is going to run with it and he's going to take us into what it means to be a whole new community not just individuals in the spirit but a whole community in the spirit a peak community church in the spirit he's going to show us what that looks like but i think i think for this morning what do you say we just kind of leave it there is that good enough for this morning does that sound good no okay all right our dad thanks for hearing the prayers that we can articulate and thanks for hearing the prayers that we don't really have words for. We're grateful that your spirit's in us. Let us be led by your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now may the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. And may he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Amen. Go in peace.